Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. We do have a blessing tonight for our marriages, a little pr opening prayer for all of our marriages, which face so many difficulties and challenges in the modern world. Whether you're married or you're not married, let's pray together for marriage and uh, for the restoration of our marriages in the church. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. O God, most pure author of all creation, who because of your love for mankind transformed the rib of our forefather Adam into a woman, seeing her, Adam said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You bless them, saying, increase and multiply, fill the earth and have dominion over it. And by their conjoining, declare the two to be one flesh. Therefore, a man shall forsake his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. O you who didst bless your servant Abraham, and opening the womb of Sarah, made him the father of many nations, who gave Isaac to Rebekah and blessed her offspring, who joined Jacob to Rachel, and from them did bring forth the twelve patriarchs, who united Joseph and Asenath, giving to them Ephraim and Manasseh as the fruit of their generation, who accepted Zechariah and Elizabeth, and accepted their offspring to be the forerunner, who from the root of Jesse, according to the flesh, brought forth the ever-Virgin Mary and was incarnate of her, and from her were born for the salvation of the human race, who through your unutterable grace and manifold goodness were present in Cana at Galilee and blessed the marriage there to make manifest that it is your will that there should be lawful union and procreation. Do you the same, all holy master, accept the prayer of us, your servants, and as you were present there, be also present here with your invisible protection. Continue, we beg you, to bless our marriages and grant to your servants a peaceful life and length of days, chastity, mutual love, and a bond of peace, grateful children, an unfading crown of glory. Keep our marriages unassailed and give us the dew of heaven from on high. Continue to fill our house with wheat, wine, and oil, and every good thing, so that we may in turn give to those in need. Bless your servants as you blessed Abraham and Sarah. Bless your servants as you blessed Isaac and Rebekah. Bless your servants as you blessed Joachim and Anna. For you are merciful, O God, and you love mankind. And we render glory to you, to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Father Bergman, we turn it over to you. Thank you so much. So in the first session, we described the chaos that is undermining the family. 
the rotten fruits that popes said would ensue if immorality were lauded and then uh, legalized. And we described that as the male abdication of responsibility. In the second session last week, we described the proper ordering of the home, the importance of the paterfamilias assuming his responsibility. And we concluded by pointing out that the observance of the hierarchy of ends of marriage, that is to say that children, the marriage was instituted for uh, the procreation of children, this actually aids in the attainment of our salvation, which is the secondary end of marriage. And then of course, the third one, which we'll talk a little about today, uh, aiding in resisting uh, concupiscence. So uh, uh, today, uh, our concern is within that proper ordering. What do we do? How do our good works tend towards the restoration of marriage generally, uh, of marriage for uh, society in general? So the context is Jesus reconciling death and resurrection by which God and man are reconciled. Man and woman are again made one flesh and church and state are no longer rivals but complementary institutions that work together for the good of mankind. For these reconciliations to bear fruit, we must first have confidence in the grace of God. So one of the big problems in America, as I mentioned in the very first session, is predestinarian fatalism. And so if we are going to restore marriage, we have to have confidence in the grace of God, the grace of God that has been poured out upon us so I'm going to read uh, chapter, or rather, uh, paragraph 40. If you look at your, if you look at the handout that I sent to everybody, or rather, that Annie sent to everybody for me, I'm going to look at 40, uh, paragraph 40 of Pius XI's Casi Canubi. It says, By the very fact, therefore, that the faithful with sincere mind give such consent, that is, to their marriage vows, they open up for themselves a treasure of sacramental grace, from which they draw supernatural power for the fulfilling of their rights and duties faithfully, holily, perseveringly, even unto death. Hence, the sacrament not only increases sanctifying grace, the permanent principle of the supernatural life in those who, as the expression is, place no obstacle in its way, also adds particular gifts, dispositions, and seeds of grace by elevating and perfecting the natural powers. By these gifts, the parties are assisted not only in understanding, but in knowing intimately and adhering to firmly and willing effectively, and then successfully putting into practice those things which pertain to the marriage state, its aims and duties, giving them in fine right to the actual assistance of grace whensoever they need it, fulfilling the duties of their state. So what the Holy Father is saying is that we see through marriage, because it is the means of grace, it is a sacrament after all, it increases sanctifying grace. It is a help to our salvation. And it adds particular gifts, understanding, knowledge, and aids our wills. In all that pertains to married life, grace brings to a successful completion. Now, he also notes that we must cooperate with grace in order for it to benefit us. We have to cooperate with the grace, and this is in paragraph uh, 41. He says, the grace of matrimony will remain for the most part an unused talent hidden in the field unless parties exercise these supernatural powers and cultivate and develop the seeds of grace they have received. So the grace of matrimony 
That is to say, cooperation is, has to be, cooperation is required in order for that grace to take place. In order for that grace to be efficacious, we have to cooperate with it. So how do we cooperate as men and women of faith? First of all, we have to have frequent sacraments of penance and communion. We obviously have to be penitential for our sins and willing to humble ourselves to receive the power that God gives us through his body, blood, soul, and divinity in the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. Second, we have not to live as brother and sister. If we read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 through 7, we see exactly what St. Paul is talking about. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman, that his celibacy is fine. But because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So this is to say the third end of marriage, the aiding of concupiscence, that is directing our passions aright. Here we see in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the correct way of ordering our passions. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not rule over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does. Do not refuse one another, except perhaps by agreement for a season, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, lest Satan tempt you to lack of self-control. I say this by way of concession, not of command. I wish that all were as I myself have. For each has his own special gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So we have to understand that marriage is not seen as only a concession. He, sent, he ends that paragraph by saying that marriage is a gift. Just as celibacy is a gift, so marriage is a gift, and each person is given his particular gift from God as he gets on to later in chapter 12 of the same epistle. So what I found in my life as a priest is I far more often counseled people who are living in continence, perhaps not intentionally or uh, uh, something has happened in the marriage. I've counseled people who aren't uh, entering into the marital act more often than I have counseled people who are uh, suffering as a result of someone going astray, that is to say adultery. So uh, this is a, 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 an issue I've learned through my time in the confessional and through my time uh, counseling people that too often the sacrament of grace that is available to us through uh, the marital act is neglected. Now, if we have to use NFP, and of course there are good grounds, there are good grounds for using NFP, uh, continence will be temporarily necessary. And so the sacrifice becomes rather than offering themselves to one another, sacrifice becomes actually withholding oneself from another. So, so in any rate, the marital act is sacrificial. We lay down our lives for each other uh, in the most intimate way, and occasionally, uh, when necessary, we actually have to refrain in order that uh, we might make a similar sacrifice. Third thing, practice the way that we uh, cooperate with grace. Practice solidarity. That is to say, the man and the woman, uh, husband and wife, have to have a united front. And also subsidiarity. If possible, do it yourself. The principle of subsidiarity says that things that can be handled on a local level should be. 
And this, this obviously is within the context of the domestic church as well, not just uh, larger societies, but also within the home. If we don't have to outsource it, don't. If we can do it ourselves uh, with the United Front, this is what we should do. But we also, at the same time, have to develop a relationship with a pastor whom we trust. Now, this is the reason we get married in church, why a priest uh, has to actually witness uh, a marriage in the uh, all of the Eastern Catholic churches and a priest or deacon in the Latin church. But the reason we do this, uh, the reason we have a witness, and there is a six-month pre-cana, uh, there's six months of preparation, minimum six months, uh, why there is uh, time met with the pastor in person is, one, to make sure that we're accountable, but also that we have somebody whom we can relate to when to receive help when it's needed. But there's a third reason. The reason that we get married in church is not only to have accountability, not only to have help, but also that we as a couple are available to help others who are faltering. Because as you know, there are all kinds of people in the church who are struggling. They need our help. And so when we get married in public and people know that we are uh, true to the vows that we've made, then they will reach out to us or we might see people faltering and even reach out to them. We have to understand here that the grace that God is giving us through the sacrament of marriage, through the sacrament of Holy Communion, through the sacrament of penance, all the graces that we receive through the sacraments are for evangelization. So we aren't here in forming marriages, in forming uh, societies, in, in, in the church in general. We are not trying to build a fortress for preservation. We are rather building up cells for evangelization. We are storming the gates of hell. We aren't, remember that, that, that passage from St. Matthew's Gospel where uh, Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. That means that the devil is on the defensive. He's behind the gates, and we are storming the gates of hell. We're going towards to break them down. So we don't ever get ourselves into a fortress mentality and things in terms of preservation because this is the posture of the devil, and it is un-Catholic. It isn't Catholic to assume a defensive posture. We have to assume an offensive orientation. And so therefore, the cells that we have made are for evangelization, not preservation. Now, of course, uh, within the domestic church, then, we have to engage in uh, daily prayer uh, with our wife, and, uh, or that is to say, with our spouse and our children. But there also must be a conscious rejection of fatalism in our words and on our deeds, which will give confidence in God's grace. We can never say things like, oh, God must be punishing me, uh, things along those lines, which aren't Catholic at all. They're, they're very Calvinistic, uh, uh, even uh, Jansenistic. Uh, we, we can't be uh, negative. We have to instead exude gratitude, which, of course, St. Paul makes clear in uh, Colossians chapter 3. This is the opportunity, then, to graciously receive compliments. The most common compliment that I receive is that you have such a beautiful family, and in which case we are given the opportunity to give glory to God and deflect whatever praise we have received to the graces that God has bestowed upon us. Now, secondly, for the reconciliation of Jesus Christ to bear fruit, we must secondly conform our lives to reality 
not insist upon the opposite. First thing we do then is embrace complementarity. There is a certain freedom in the delineation of roles. For example, my wife is free, feels free instead of uh, frightened, knowing that I have vowed uh, to place myself between the wolf and the sheep. Uh, she knows that she doesn't have to do that. So therefore she is free to pursue those things where she is more competent. And so on my end, on a regular basis, I have to accept that my children will regularly uh, choose the affection of their mother over mine. This isn't, this is in no way a diminution of who I am or how I live as a father. They're with her all the time. They're with her more often. They see her uh, not quite 24 hours a day, but because our, our children are homeschooled and have been uh, for uh, many years, they are with her constantly. I am in and out. So I'm out there providing she is at home nurturing. There's a freedom in simply accepting the reality, not fighting it. She doesn't have to go learn Kung Fu, and I don't have to pretend to be a mom. I can simply fulfill my role, and she can fulfill hers. There is, in, there is freedom in not insisting that others affirm our lie. That is to say, uh, I want you to affirm me in my lie. That not only takes away uh, my own freedom, because I'm not living in the freedom of God, I'm also requiring that a person forswear his own freedom. So I'm going to read to you uh, the passage of uh, St. Paul the uh, Sixth in uh, chapter, uh, sorry, sorry, paragraph 18. And he addresses this, this, this very reality. He says, it can be foreseen that this teaching that is with regard to uh, the church not backing down with regard to her uh, immemorial teaching with regard to contraception, it can be foreseen that this teaching will perhaps not easily be received by all. Too numerous are those voices which are contrary to the voice of the church. To tell the truth, the church is not surprised to be made, like a divine founder, a sign of the contradiction. Yet she does not, because of this, cease to proclaim with humble firmness the entire moral law, both natural and evangelical. Of such laws, the church was not the author, nor consequently can she be their arbiter. She is only their depository and their interpreter without ever being able to declare to be licit that which is not so by reason of its intimate and unchangeable opposition to the true good of man. So as I said in the session last time, the reason uh, Humana Vitae is the most important thing written in the 20th century is because of this particular sentence I just read. She is only the depository and the interpreter of the laws of God without ever being able to declare to be licit that was not so by reason of this intimate and unchangeable opposition to the true good of man. We can't, he said, I will not change the teaching. Not only that, I'm not, it is not possible for me to. We have to conform our lives to the truth, not try to change the truth to conform to what we want. Change the truth to our wills. Paragraph 18 of Ioanni Vitae. In defending conjugal morals and their integral wholeness, the church knows that she contributes toward the establishment of a truly human civilization. She engages man not to abdicate from his own responsibility, nor to rely on technical means. By that very fact, she defends the dignity of man and wife. 
faithful to both the teaching and the example of the Savior, she shows herself to be the sincere and disinterested friend of men, whom she wishes to help, even during their earthly sojourn, to share her sons in the life of the living God, the Father of all men. So never imagine that freedom is license rather than liberty. License, of course, is the freedom to do whatever we want. Liberty is the freedom to do what is true, right, good, and holy. For freedom, God has set us free, as St. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. We are free to pursue the right. That is the great freedom of living in the hope of the resurrection. I can never be forced to do what is wrong, even at the threat of death. I can never be forced to do what is wrong because I know what's the worst that can happen to me. I die? Well, okay. Then I am raised to newness of life. So there are practical considerations under this theme. And so I want to go uh, through them. Uh, and I think I have oh, uh, about uh, nine or 10 of them. First, your job as Catholic parents is to educate your children. And in America, the reality is that the majority of our educational institutions are working actively or through negligence, I, I would say malicious negligence, to destroy your family and the role uh, and, and to rob your children of their souls. That's the reality. I think that you down, I'm gonna give a shout out to you down in Loudoun County and those of you who might be uh, there in uh, uh, the class tonight, uh, a lot of the people in Loudoun County are fighting hard against critical race theory, which of course uh, uh, issues in the demonization of white people, which is uh, horrific, uh, just the total opposite of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream. But uh, the same fight, the same vehemence that they're fighting now, uh, they have to fight with regard to, for example, the sex, edu sex education programs in the same types of schools where they teach kids how to put condoms on cucumbers, et cetera. I mean, uh, there are things that are completely soul-destroying. Yes, institutionalized racism uh, is soul-destroying, but so is uh, really the modern sex education in American public schools. It's straight out of hell. So uh, we have to understand that not only in public schools, uh, but even in institutions of higher learning, uh, even Catholic ones, where I've heard all kinds of horror stories. I won't go into them here, uh, but just understand the reality is that a lot of uh, institutions that are supposedly committed to education actually are uh, uh, sort of moving backwards, uh, not, not helping your children progress towards heaven, but actually hindering it, uh, putting uh, stumbling blocks. Secondly, the internet and cell phones are mostly negative influence on children if they are not excessively monitored. As I said in the, in the first year, first session, the uh, number one industry on the internet is porn. So uh, it would be wonderful if the number one uh, industry on the internet were uh, what's happening tonight, but that isn't the reality. Uh, and so recognizing that reality, we have to uh, uh, really keep a lid on uh, access by uh, uh, use of children uh, the use that children have of phones and the internet. Third, indulging children has a very poor track record. You know, the spare, the rod, 
spoil the child uh, from Proverbs, it's a reality. Uh, when we uh, indulge children, they often end up uh, rather uh, uninspired and uh, don't work very hard. And so we, we can't do all the work for them, uh, nor can we give them everything they want if we want them to actually give us, uh, help us to a better tomorrow. Uh, you, as parents, are the ones who determine the guests in your home, and you have to screen friends. Nobody comes across the threshold of your door without your permission, and when your uh, children present you with a new friend, you check them out. Uh, you have, have them over dinner, and then you can say, oh, well, that's a really nice uh, person you've met, or you're never going to see that person again. So you have to do this uh, in order to understand the secular uh, culture in which we live is, is, is caustic. And if we want to protect our children, we have to be serious about monitoring even uh, the relationships that our minor children enter into. Also, four, private property is necessary. Rerum Novarum articulates this beautifully. Uh, the Holy Father, uh, Leo XIII, again, talks about how the basis of freedom is in uh, owning property because this is the means by which we are able to provide for our offspring. That if uh, we don't own anything, uh, then we are, are uh, subject to the whims of others. But if we have property by which uh, we can gain enough profit by which to live and uh, to share, then we have freedom. So uh, uh, our goal as a couple, even if at the beginning, obviously we get married young, we don't have anything. Our goal has to be the acquisition of private property, by which we may provide for our children uh, in the long term. Fifth, suffering is good for you. And if it is offered up, it can be good for others also. Uh, we are bound to be victimized by those who desire our silence or even uh, more ominously our liquidation. But we are not the victim. So this is number six. Even though we will invariably be victimized because we're speaking the truth and Jesus promised us persecution, Jesus is the victim. And a martyr complex will do nothing to attract converts nor will it retain our children under the shelter of our wings. We cannot ever adopt a orientation of woe is me. Uh, when we suffer, we remember that Jesus was silent. When we suffer, which we are bound to do, we are bound to suffer, we don't whine about it. Nor do we act as though we ourselves are the ones uh, uh, who is uh, suffering upon uh, the crucifix at church. Jesus is the victim by whom we are. We can enter into that redemptive work, but the redemptive work is not ours. And so we have to think ourselves more as victors with Jesus over sin and death, not as victims. Seventh, the most important thing you have done is uh, you accomplished, if you have children, you accomplished it when you were resting. I'm going to show you, uh, it's a really beautiful passage uh, from uh, Psalm 127. If you have your Bible, Psalm 127, uh, verse uh, 3 and 4. It's a really, it's a really uh, great, it's one of my favorite psalms, precisely because of this, this uh, uh, brilliant uh, insight that the psalmist points out. It is but lost labor that ye haste to rise up early and so late take rest and eat the bread of carefulness. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. 
He gives us rest. He gives us rest. And what comes after rest? Lo, children and the fruit of the womb are in heritage and gift that cometh of the Lord. So it is precisely through rest that life proceeds. Life proceeds, and we see if we go on in the same psalm, if we go on in the same psalm, we see at the end that more is better. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them, that is children. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. So the Lord asks us to be fruitful and multiply. And this Psalm 127 is yet another example of how important it is that we rest and that life proceed from our rest. Life proceeds from rest, not work. In fact, when we make uh, children work, when we make them an act like we like happens in in vitro fertilization, etc. Uh, it's, it's actually demeaning. Uh, children are supposed to come about as a result not of work but of rest. So, eighth, divorce is out of the question. It is not even being considered. Uh, it should uh, not uh, be mentioned. If we must be separated, uh, well, that that's the reality. The church. In fact, uh, talks about this over and over again. In fact, in Arcanum, which we, we discuss, uh, discussed from uh, 1880, Pope Leo's encyclical marriage, if they must be separated, uh, and, he, and he recognized that reality, because sometimes, indeed, a person's life is put at risk, uh, living with a maniac. Uh, if they must be separated, uh, let them not divorce, and then pray for the reconciliation, pray for the conversion of the guilty party, and that one day, hopefully, by God's grace, they might be reconciled. So now I'm going to read to you uh, Pope Leo, uh, uh, Catholicity in the United States. This is a passage that you have uh, uh, before you as well. It says, unless forced by necessity to do otherwise, Catholics ought to prefer to associate with Catholics, a chorus which will be very conducive the safeguarding of their faith. And then I'm going to skip a bunch of words and at the end. The scenes of violence and riot, which you witnessed last year in your own country, sufficiently admonish you that America, too, is threatened with the audacity and ferocity of the enemies of public order. The state of the Times, therefore, bids Catholics to labor for the tranquility of the Commonwealth, and for this purpose to obey the laws, abhor violence, and seek no more than equity or justice permits. It's an interesting paradox. This is the uh, passage that he talks about violence last year, all the riots. Well, no, he's not talking about 2020 uh, when the mass, uh, uh, unfortunately, in so many places was suspended and it issued in, in horrific outbreaks of violence. Uh, he's talking about the Panic of 1893 and the riots that ensued in uh, 1894, uh, the Pullman strike uh, in particular, some really horrific violence that occurred in our in our nation, but he's saying that association with Catholics is necessary, not to the exclusion of other people, but for the mutual support uh, that is necessary in order for us to build up Holy Mother Church, in order that we be more effective as an evangelical institution. So that sort of thing will happen with, with regard to education. So for example, at our parish, we have a school which, is a, which uh, meets three days a week, each kid is officially homeschooled, but they're able to come to school and uh, take classes, and thus uh, uh, parents really banding together to make sure that their children have a Catholic education. 
this can happen and all over the place, and it is happening all over the place. I mean, all you have to do is, is open your eyes and you see the explosion, really, in almost independent uh, Catholic schools. That, that's one element. But in our own diocese, I mean, it's the bishop is sponsoring this sort of thing, where he wants each of his parishes to have a similar setup that we do in uh, Scranton. Secondly, we need to get together for fraternity and uh, fellowship. Uh, there's all kinds of fraternal organizations, and there's opportunity to be uh, able to socialize with people who share uh, the same faith and same values. And so we, we uh, want to have uh, association with Catholics who take for granted, for example, uh, uh, that, that uh, uh, life is sacred. And so is uh, the marriage bond. Third, we should have a Catholic association with regard to business. One of the things that's been a great uh, uh, detriment to us in, in uh, the past um, rather 50 years or so is that so much of the money that we spend is then used against us. Uh, that is to say, we give money uh, to Warren Buffett and he uses that money to promote abortion. Uh, we give money to Bill Gates and he uses that money. He uses that uh, money in order to promote contraception across the globe. So in order that we are not compromised uh, and we stop enriching our enemies, it may be time to begin thinking about uh, economic systems. And, and uh, G.K. Chesterton talks a lot about this in his discussion uh, of distributism. May begin, we ought to begin to thinking about how we might band together by which we can spend money and don't see that uh, our hard-earned money is used against our own faith. Uh, fourth, piety. Uh, so we ought to engage in uh, prayer uh, and pilgrimages outside of Mass. Uh, we ought to uh, make pilgrimages uh, for reparation, but also uh, to, to petition God for things that we need. We need to be together for uh, mutual uh, defense in an event of persecution. We ought to be familiar with how we might protect our uh, lives and properties uh, should uh, the persecution come. And of course, uh, we need to band together for the sake of political organiza organization. Uh, it is not uh, wrong on the part of uh, Catholics to, to lobby politically, and this is what the third thing that we need for the fruitfulness of reconciliation to be affected. In order for this fruitfulness uh, through Jesus Christ uh, to take place, we have to think in terms of working towards uh, church and state cooperation uh, to preserve the family. This is the, uh, as I said, the third reconciliation, the first reconciliation between uh, God and man, second reconciliation between man and woman, third reconciliation between church and state. The church and the state must work together in cooperation to preserve the family. Right now we're seeing a horrific competition uh, uh, and what needs to happen is cooperation. So the first thing I would note uh, in, in making this presentation, and I have a copy here of the constitution. Uh, you probably read it, hopefully you have, uh, but it does not make one single reference in the entire document. It does not make one single reference to God other than at the very end, right before, right above George Washington's signature, uh, the enumeration of the year that it was drafted. Uh, the year of our Lord is the only reference to God in the entire Constitution. And so I'm going uh, uh, to read uh, again from uh, Leo, 
in uh, Catholicity in the United States. And he compliments us uh, by saying, uh, there are some good things about your constitution. He says, for the church amongst you, unopposed by the constitution and government of your nation, fettered by no hostile legislation, protected against violence by the common laws and impartiality of the tribunals, is free to live and act without hindrance. Yet, though all this is true, it would be very erroneous to draw the conclusion that in America, it is to be sought the type of the most desirable status of the church, or that it would be universally lawful or expedient for state and church to be, as in America, dissevered and divorced. The fact that Catholicity with you is in good condition, nay, is even enjoying a prosperous growth, is by all means to be attributed to the fecundity with which God has endowed his church. So don't attribute the growth of the church in America to our constitution, attribute it rather to God's grace. And then finally, he concludes by saying, but she would bring forth more abundant fruits if, in addition to liberty, she enjoyed the favor of the laws and the patronage of the public authority. Imagine how differently things would be in America if what our governors, what our legislators, what our president promoted was marriage, not its complete destruction. If we had the patronage of the state, we would all together as a society, not just Catholics, not just because obviously we're talking about the natural law and the moral law, everybody would benefit if, if we had the patronage of the state and not her opposition, active opposition, actively working to undermine. So uh, this, you say, oh, that's old, that's a long time ago, uh, 1895, saying, you know, the church and the state should cooperate. Well, so I'll read to you then uh, chapter uh, 23 from uh, St. Paul VI, a letter humanavitae, which is right there in front of you. To rulers, who are those principally responsible for the common good, and who can do so much to safeguard moral customs, we say, do not allow the morality of your peoples to be degraded. Do not permit that by legal means, practices contrary to the natural and divine law, be introduced into that fundamental cell of the family. Quite other is the way in which public authorities can and must contribute to the solution of the demographic problem, namely, the way of provident policy for the family, of a wise education of peoples in respect of moral law and the liberty of citizens. So that's 1968. So again, the Holy Father says, the church and the state must cooperate for the good of the family. Well, that isn't the last one I'm going to have you read. Well, we have the Catechism from uh, 1992. And what does it say? Pornography consists in removing real or simulated sexual acts from the intimacy of the partners in order to display them deliberately to third parties. It is a grave offense. Civil authorities should prevent the production and distribution of pornographic materials. Again, the church calling for the state and the church to cooperate for the good of the citizenry. All of them are advocating the civil authorities to help the people of our nation grow in morality, not be degraded. So we have to understand that all legislation is the public and corporate articulation of morality. We prohibit that which is harmful. We promote that which is helpful. There is therefore no false dichotomy between private conviction 
and public morality, as President Biden has maintained, as his uh, predecessor politician, Governor Cuomo, insisted upon, even at a speech at Notre Dame at the preeminent Catholic institution in the United States. There can be no distinction, no false dichotomy between private conviction and public morality. You can say, I am opposed to abortion, but I'm going to promote access to it. I am against abortion, but I'm going to promote funding for it, not only here, but overseas. Remember, uh, Biden just recently said he doesn't like the Hyde Amendment anymore, something he had supported for you know, uh, over 40 years. And now he uh, throws it out and says, I'm going to promote, oh, but I'm still opposed to abortion. There are things that undermine the public good. And they, uh, for the good of society, they must be outlawed. I'm simply gonna give you a list. I want to make sure that we get uh, through the entire presentation, but I simply uh, will say that all of these things, now some of them are still outlawed, but all of these things, were 100 years ago in many places and 200 years ago almost everywhere against the law. Contraception, pornography, sodomy, fornication, abortion, divorce, spousal abuse, abandonment, that is spousal abandonment, adultery, and polygamy. Now we're talking about, of course, in the West, as we know very well in the Ottoman Empire, uh, we could not say uh, really that this is, is the case at all. But in the West, we're talking about Western civilization and the culture in which uh, we have been raised, the culture of which we are the inheritors. All of these things should be against the law to protect the public good. Now, I should go without saying that this list should include rape and the sexual abuse of minors. Uh, but, and I, wouldn't, I didn't want to say it, but what yesterday was unimaginable has come true now. What yesterday was illegal, which, and, and like I can remember it. I'm, I'm only 50 years old, but I can remember a lot of the things that I just listed being against the law. And now they're all legal. So we have to say, yes, yes, rape and sexual abuse of minors, these should be illegal as well. This is what the future could hold. And it's already happening really uh, in the efforts to get the age of consent lowered and so forth, uh, we're seeing uh, across the globe and even in the United States, efforts to see even the rape of children legalized, horrific. So in other words, the positive law of the state must accord with the natural and the moral law of God. That's what St. Paul VI is saying in Humana Vitae. The positive law of the state must accord with the natural and the moral law of God. What we work towards, then, is a confessional state. There is not rivalry. Obviously, this should be taken for granted between churches. There's no rivalry. Rather, there's a common mission, and that common mission is for the salvation of souls. It respects the right to life, private property, and each of our personal vocations. All of this is protected under a government that is functioning as it should. The competition that we have seen uh, really in the wake of uh, the French Revolution, but really even our constitution, which was written prior to, which written prior to the French Revolution, our constitution assumes competition. That's why we have to have the balance of powers and so forth uh, and checks and balances. It assumes 
people butting heads. It's very Hobbesian. It's uh, it's a lot of schlock. Uh, we don't want to assume man uh, that men are going to be at each other's throats. We want to assume that together as a nation we're going to go in the same direction, achieve the same purpose. We desire the salvation of souls and the protection of the life and liberty of our citizens. So if the role of the state is to protect the citizens, we must say, we must confess that as a nation we have failed. Uh, that is to say, uh, over 60 million abortions since 1973, that's a body count that make the Aztecs blush. We talk about the barbarity of the Aztecs and why uh, their horrific culture had to be torn down and why Cortez did a good thing in destroying it. What are we saying about ourselves? Uh, we have a culture in which the innocent are dying at a rate of 1.5 million per year. That's uh, obscene. And so we ought to look for alternatives. How can we form a government in which the innocent are no longer slaughtered? My concluding remarks. The assault on liberty these past 200 years, that is the assault on the ability to do that which is right, true, holy, and good, this has been sustained and, as I just pointed out, very bloody, even, we should say, relentless. But we can take encouragement in the reality that we have never been a subject people. Uh, we, after all, uh, were able to defeat uh, those uh, people, those nations that wish to subjugate us, starting uh, obviously uh, in the uh, 7th century uh, when uh, the Muslim horde raced across North Africa into Iberia, were stopped at Tours, and then they tried to come in from Constantinople, succeeded in 14. Uh, 53, made it all the way to the gates of Vienna, but they were pushed back and they were pushed out. And therefore, the Christian civilization, Western civilization, has never been subjected, thank God. We have never been a subject people. We've gotten a little selfish the last few hundred years, but we have not forgotten who we are. The fact that you're able to understand the lectures that I've given these past three weeks that you still use reason and linear thinking proves my point. The fact that my talks to you have made eminent sense to you show that we as a people have not forgotten who we are. And the talks I have given would make sense to almost anybody uh, who has been raised uh, in the Western canon. The gateway uh, to the revolution that we're suffering through has been contraception its widespread acceptance. And so I'm going to close with St. Paul VI about how we have what we have to gain by man's return to the observance of the natural and the moral law, wherein marriage is not just honored by the state, but by actually those who are married. And so I'm going to read uh, from chapter, uh, that is to say, paragraph 21 from Humanae Vitae. Speaking of the observance of the natural and moral law, he says, it demands continual effort. Yet thanks to its beneficent influence, husband and wife fully developed their personalities, being enriched with spiritual values. Such discipline bestows upon family life, puts a serenity and peace, and facilitates the solution of other problems, fears attention from one's partner, helps both parties drive out selfishness, the enemy of true love, and deepens their sense of responsibility. By its means, parents require the capacity of having a deeper and more efficacious influence in the education of their offspring. Little children and youths 
grow up with the just appraisal of human values and the serene and harmonious development of the spiritual and sensitive faculties. What he's saying is if you want to have generous children who will indeed help give us a better tomorrow, it is important to practice unrestrained generosity in the entirety of your marriages, but most especially in the one thing that they will never see you do. This is the great paradox. That act which is hidden from your children is the one that first of all, most of all, must be unselfish. And if we are unselfish in this way, we'll raise unselfish children. Thank you. Wow, thank you so much, Father Bergman, for once again, just another enlightening, eye-opening lecture. We will move into Q&A here. And Inez, I see uh, you have your your hand raised. Something I heard the other day in a homily was that uh, one of the problems with marriage is that when people do their vows, they they build a vow for in times of richness, good in good times, and health. And that was one of the problems that the marriages don't don't keep going. Uh, my question is a little bit. Um, I hope you don't take it like against what you were saying, but there's something that most Catholics do. We don't know much about it, and it's annulment. Can you tell us? You said that we shouldn't divorce should not be part of part of the something that we should even be talking about, if necessary, separation, but not divorce. But what can you talk a little bit about annulment, please? Sure. So annulment means that the, uh, the there was a defect uh, in either uh, the intent or the form of the matter. Now, the matter of the form is very simple to see. Is it a man or a woman? Uh, is the form present? Uh, was a priest witnessing it? Uh, that's very easy. Uh, but the intent, you have to see, was the person free? Did they intend to be faithful? Did they intend to be fruitful? Did they intend to be together until death do his part? And if, if each uh, party in the marriage all four of those intentions have to be present. If one of those intentions is not present, then it means then that the sacrament isn't, in fact, the marriage never existed, even if it were consummated. Now, so that is to say, uh, obviously, the fifth condition is that they actually consummate the marriage, actually do uh, what they said they would do. Uh, so uh, sometimes there are, in fact, unions that are uh, null and void. That is to say, uh, Jesus makes reference to this, that, that uh uh, for, except for unchastity, that sort of means that if the marriage never existed, so so for example, uh, cousins, uh, first cousins, they can't be married to each other. Uh, a nun can't be married to a, a priest who hasn't been laicized, uh, who hasn't received a rescript, can't be married. So there's all kinds of ways in which a marriage can exist. But amongst uh, uh, people who uh, did get married, in order for marriage to actually not be valid, it has to be based on the intention on the day of the marriage, not later. Uh, the fact that a person cheats 25 years into the marriage doesn't mean that he didn't intend to be faithful on the day of his wedding. And so if you can demonstrate uh, that there was an inclination or there was a lack of freedom, that there was something at the beginning uh, that would inhibit the freedom of either, either party or that either party didn't intend to be faithful, that maybe one party got a vasectomy, uh, that is the man got a vasectomy before the marriage even happened, obviously it would intend to, mean, intend to be fruitful, so that marriage never existed. In which case, of course, uh, the, 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 uh, according to the laws of the United States, you'd have to get a civil divorce and then apply to the, uh, uh, to the church for annulment. And so 
So indeed, annulment is something the church has done for a very long time. Uh, it's simply stating that the marriage never that they didn't get divorced. Uh, the, the divorce is simply civil. Uh, they didn't get divorced. They didn't uh, put asunder uh, that which had existed. They simply separated uh, because the marriage never did act, in fact exist. So annulment is real. Uh, it seems to me uh, that there's an awful uh, lot uh, in, in, in America, uh, but it is real. And for those who suspect uh, that they that they are not truly married, uh, it can be a great it can be great freedom uh, to have the church tribunal say, in fact, uh, this marriage never existed. There was a defect in the intent uh, right from the get go, and and so it, uh, it it can be in many ways a liberation. What happens then? What's the condition, or what happens uh, to the situation of the children if they are children from that marriage? Right. So they. So the 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 question of uh, illegitimacy, uh, which is what people get so uh, uh, concerned about, is has to do more with inheritance rights, and they had to do with uh, noble titles, etc. Uh, what people would in in, in uh, times past inherit that only uh, children of uh, a married couple could uh, receive. It doesn't have so much to say that the children. It doesn't say, oh, the children uh, in an old marriage are bastards. It doesn't mean that at all. It had more to do, so the church never says that a child is illegitimate. There's no such thing as an illegitimate child. There might be illegitimate parents, uh, but there's not an illegitimate child. And so so uh, the children uh, do not pay for the sin of the father or the mother. Uh, they are uh, seen, obviously, in the fullness of their dignity, and it, it does not have an impact at all uh, with their other status. We don't even have those issues uh, in, in, in the modern age in uh, just about any country, uh, except if you're talking about like uh, uh, the nobility and in a lot of places, they've thrown those old uh, distinctions out the window as well. So, so don't, so don't uh, get wrapped up with the question of illegitimacy. Father, could you just list off the, the conditions for annulment again? We had someone write in to ask. Yeah, so it, it has to do with whether the parties were free to enter into the marriage. Uh, this is why, for example, uh, police officers or federal agents who get married can't get married with their weapons on them. Uh, FBI agents, for example, are required to carry uh, their uh, weapon with them uh, wherever they go. I told uh, recently I married a FBI agent. I told him you cannot bring your gun into the, into the sanctuary. So, he, so that could imply a possibility that there was coercion. They could go back and say, "Oh, he had a gun on him." Of course, I married him. So, so the, so the, so that, uh, so for, one is freedom. Two, fruitfulness. Uh, do the parties do both parties intend to be fruitful? Uh, uh, third, faithful to the both parties intend to be uh, keep themselves only to each other as long as they both shall live, and that's the fourth thing that it will perdure until uh, one of them dies. Those are the and if 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 one of those uh, four or maybe more of one of those four in either party is lacking, then this is the basis for annulment decisions. Yes, Father uh, Berg, can you comment on? What constitutes a hardship in like deciding to have more children? Because um, I remember uh, we have seven children, but in the beginning, you know, it was easy to have children after one child, after one child, after one child. But what? But then when the education of the children came into play, it was harder to decide when it was time to have another child. Could you comment on that, please? Absolutely. I think that I think that there's. Uh... As I said before in the talk, there are grounds 
for using NFP. And and one of them, uh, the, the most principal one, is uh, the threat of uh, life to the mother. Uh, that would be a principal concern. Uh, secondly, uh, the threat of uh, life to the child himself. I, there, there, there are some genetic problems that cause the child to die in every instance. Uh, and so it would not be wrong uh, for people to look to NFP in that case. They'd still be open to life if it were to occur, but they would not be wrong. And, and uh, third, psychological equilibrium, as, as St. Paul uh, VI mentions in Humana Vitae. So we have to take that seriously. Uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, extreme uh, poverty. Uh, one of the things we have to trust when we think about education, uh, uh, the Lord is going to provide. I have uh, 10 children, and uh, by God's grace, somehow, uh, my two eldest are going to school uh, and not having to go into incredible debt. So uh, we hope, we simply trust uh, that the Lord uh, will provide and uh, wait for that. Don't, don't think in terms of how much a child costs, these ridiculous numbers that the federal government puts out on a regular basis, that the uh, average child is going to cost this many hundred thousand dollars through the course of 18 years. Ignore all that. Trust rather in the Lord's providence. Now, if you're living in grinding poverty and you can't literally afford another mouth to feed, then but I don't know anybody in America that's living like that, but it, it does exist. It does exist in the world. Uh, uh, but it is, it is a wrong that, again, church and state have to work together to ameliorate. Uh, uh, but, but it is not something that we normally witness here in America, but it could be. And, of course, the last condition, horrific civil disturbance. I could imagine, if you remember the war in Bosnia in the early 90s, I could imagine delaying pregnancy in that circumstance with the people who are living in Sarajevo uh, being shelled every day. Uh, they couldn't even go out and get a loaf of bread without worrying about dying. That's, that'd be grounds. Uh, so we're talking, uh, when we talk about NFP, there's a good use for it, but it isn't something that we use as the Catholic form of contraception. Father, we'll get you out of here on on this last question. Is it problematic or or how is it problematic that Western civilization views the individual as the basic unit of society as opposed to what Catholic social teaching would say that the family is the basic unit of society? I think that I, I, it isn't uh, problematic per se to give emphasis to the rights of the individual. Because after all, St. Paul says, in Christ there is neither uh, male nor female, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. We are all, every individual one of us, every single one of us, uh, is equal to everybody else in the sight of God. And this is the genius of uh, the uh, movement to uh, assert uh, the rights of the individual. What has happened isn't that, not, that's the Christian part, that's the Catholic part. What happened is the understanding of what is a right got changed. And so we began to imagine that we had the right to do that which is wrong. And of course, Abraham Lincoln said, uh, there can never be uh, the right to do that which is wrong. And, and this is something the church would agree with completely. And this is why uh, the church would say, uh, as, as Pope Leo XIII did, is that not everything that we think should be published and put in print. Not everything that we think should come out of our mouths because of uh, the right to freedom of speech. Because there's certain things that are destructive. 
And we do not have the right to destroy other people's lives. Neither do we have the right to entice them to lose their souls. And this is the reason that we see uh, in, in the past, in years past, a heresy loss, why the Inquisition happened. They understood that uh, doing whatever we want, observing license rather than liberty, would issue in the destabilization of society and ultimately war. So if we think about the Inquisition, about 3,000 people were killed in Spain. Horrific. No justification for that. But if we look at Germany, one-third of the population died. Where they could say and do whatever they wanted, and there was and uh, in the forty year in the thirty years war between sixteen eighteen and sixteen forty eight, one third of the population of Germany died because they understood that bad ideas have bad consequences. And if we desire life for a society, if we desire life for our families, if we desire life for the church, then there are some things that should never be said. There are some things that should, can never be done. Now, if they are. Uh, there are laws against them, and we, with mercy, uh, try to bring the guilty back uh, and reconcile them to uh, the church and society. But uh, the right to uh, freedom of speech, uh, the right to freedom of the press, this should not be seen as absolute. Uh, there are some ideas uh, that should never uh, be published, some ideas that should never be spoken on Speaker's Corner. Awesome. Father Bergman, would you mind uh, closing us with a prayer and your blessing? Indeed. The peace of God is passed with all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge of the love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Father Eric Bergman, it was awesome. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.